Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word and you've given us the Holy Spirit. Father, he's our teacher. God, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would quicken your word in each one of our hearts. Give us understanding in our minds. Give us wisdom, Father, as we search your word. God, I pray that we would receive it with right attitudes. God, that we would have a humility as we come and look into your word as you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I think this is like week three, maybe, in the book of James. It's beginning to look more and more like our adult Bible study classes, right? We're all the way through, almost through chapter one. This week, the title of my message is Finding Rests in Our Tests and Temptations. We talked about tests, tests that God brings into our lives, allows in our lives, tests that to build maturity, to, to build our our strength in our faith, to grow us. And we talked about temptations that come from the enemy, that come from Satan, those things that tempt us to, to sin, to enter into sin. We also talked about how if we're not careful and we don't have wisdom, we, we can sometimes see that the enemy will take what is intended by God to be a test and turn it into a temptation because we get a little bit frustrated and lose sight of what's going on in our life in the midst of that test. We get our eyes on the circumstance And we begin to think that no way this could be God. We start to enter into unbelief, doubt, whatever. And before long, Satan has taken something that God wants to use for good in our life and perverted it. That's why he says so clearly, James says, ask for wisdom. Wisdom that you would understand. Wisdom that you would see what I'm doing in your life. And also wisdom to understand and know that this is the enemy and we need to resist the enemy. And stand strong in our faith. So today, we're going to look at what I believe is the key. And I've I've stressed this in the first two messages. And as I spend more and more time in James, you're going to get sick and tired of me telling you this. But the key to rightly responding to testing, rightly resisting temptation when it comes our way, is going to be found in how we respond and react to the Word of God. The Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. We need to be in the Word of God. We discovered last week, God is good. And He doesn't tempt anybody to sin. That internal temptation is not from God. It's from the enemy or from our old flesh, that old lust that we have for things that are ungodly. And we also discovered it was by His will we were born again, by the Spirit of God, by the power in the Word of Truth. We're born again. We're a new creature in Christ. So as that new creature in Christ, assuming that that is you and me, that you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, how then should we respond to the Word of God as believers, as part of the body of Christ? So we're going to look at a few things that James, I believe, is telling us clearly that we need to do. And the first is simply this. We need to receive the Word. We need to accept it. We need to hear it. We need to take it in. In verses 19 through 21, it says, This you know, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. Notice he addresses them again, and you'll kind of see this as you go through James. It's kind of like... When he finishes one, one encouraging rebuke or teaching, 
and he's going to start another one, he reminds them that, I love you, brothers. I love you. He says, my beloved brothers again. And remember from the first uh, salutation in the book, he's writing this, he addresses it to 12 tribes of Israel, to the Jewish people. So it's primarily written to the Jewish Christians, but it certainly applies to us today. And he says, my beloved brothers, know this. Here's kind of what he's saying. My beloved brothers, pay attention. In our culture, sitting in here, he might have said, my beloved brothers, write this down so you don't forget. He is stressing with emphasis the importance of what he's about to say. And he says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I could paraphrase, paraphrase it just simply this. Listen to me and hear God. Hear God. Sometimes we get so frustrated that we never hear God. Most of the time, we're so busy, our minds are racing, our daily lives are active, we aren't hearing God and He's speaking. And even in those quiet times, those times when God seems to be silent, the Holy Spirit lives in us, is still leading, guiding, directing us, speaking to us. He says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In Proverbs 16.32, it says this, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty man. And he who rules his spirit, self-control, than the one who captures a city. He is saying, we need to be in control. Self-control in those areas that would prevent us, he's specifically addressing, from hearing the word of God. From receiving the word of God. He's basically saying, you know, to really dig into the Word, to investigate the Word, be ready to receive the Word, your spirit needs to be quieted. There is no place for an agitated spirit, an angry spirit. And as you go into the Word of God to understand the Word, to receive the Word, we need to have that calm spirit, not an agitated spirit. Now, that's an inward thing. But maybe a picture outwardly would help us to get it a little bit better. You ever tried to share the Word of God with someone who is just angry at God, angry at you, and hates the Word, and hates you because you said Jesus' name? You ever tried to do that? And the angrier they get, the less they hear. And it doesn't matter how calm you try to stay, how loving you try to stay, they aren't going to hear a word you're saying. It's not going to penetrate through that anger. That's kind of a picture sometimes how we are when we go to the Word. Have you ever read the Word and decided, I don't like what it says? <laughs> or, or it's that friendly, loving God rebuke, that word of correction. And, you know, and if we're not in the place that James is encouraging us to be, start to get a little bit worked up inside, a little agitated. I don't like this. And boy, we start going there in our spirit, all of a sudden we, we cease to hear and understand and receive the word of God like he intends it. Angry people do not become and walk in the righteousness of Christ. You may have noticed that. He, so he's encouraging us that this kind of anger does not produce that righteousness that God wants to see in each one of us. And then he says, therefore... So he says, my beloved brothers, do this. And he says, you won't hear the word if you're angry. Therefore, and then he goes on and says, 
a whole lot of things about getting rid of filthiness and ugliness and all of the garbage that corrupts our minds, can corrupt our lives. Because all of this stuff makes it hard to receive God. That mindful of garbage is just not good ground for the word of God to be planted. And he says that this word is to be implanted. Now, I'm not going to elaborate, but you can do a study on this. It's not engrafted, it's implanted. And there is a difference. Our heart, our mind, we want to be in this place where it's fertile soil. And, and, he, and he stresses to us to do this and receive it in humility. Now, most of us are familiar with the story where, where Jesus is speaking, and, and I don't know who is all in the crowd, but generally there was a few legalistic Jewish people in his crowds, some of the Pharisees. And he's talking, and he says, you know what you need to do? You need to become like a little child. You need to receive it in humility of a child. And it's the humility of the child that he's talking about. Some of us act like children when it comes to understanding, and we act like it's beyond us and we can't get it. That's not what he's saying. Don't act childish in every area of life. He says, but come in humility of a child. Humbling yourself, going to the Word and just saying, Lord, I need to know you better. Lord, I need to understand what's going on in my life. God, give me wisdom. Coming to him in that place of brokenness and humility. You know, in a sense, it's a, it's a place of weakness. But it's not, a, it's not a, a, a demeaning thing. It's a getting in the right position to receive the word thing. So when I go into the word, there's a humility that I don't know. I don't understand. And whatever it is you have for me in your word, because you are a good God, because your word is true and it never changes, and because you want nothing but good in my life and you have a destiny for me, I'm open to whatever it says. That is not the culture of a typical American Christian. We, we still go to the word of God with our pride, our self-sufficiency, really our arrogance at times. If we don't like what it says, we change it or ignore it. And much of the church in America is doing that in a whole lot of places and with a whole lot of different issues. But we need to go with humility, receiving the implanted word. It says, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now that word souls there in the Greek is the word suke. Now that word can be used a couple of different ways. It can mean simply our, our mind, will, and emotions. Or it can mean our mind, will, and emotions and also the eternal part of us, our spirit. It can mean both. Sometimes it's clear it's only the mind, will, and emotions. Sometimes it's clear it's the spirit, our eternal part. Here I believe the most clear meaning would be our eternal part. But I believe I want to I look at it and, and you can study. If I'm taking too much liberty, you can rebuke me. But I think it could mean both. The Word of God can save my soul. It can help to cleanse my mind, renew my mind. It can, it can help me take control of my thoughts 
and be obedient to his command to take every thought captive. It can get my emotions rightly aligned so that soulish part of my being, and obviously the word of God, has the power to save our eternal spirit, our soul. And I'm going to just share a couple of scriptures. Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes it. It's a powerful, powerful message for everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, think about this for a second. We're talking about, and God is talking about, this book that probably all of us at one time or another, including me, has said, it's kind of boring. It's kind of dry. It's too complicated. I can't understand. None of that's true. None of that's true. I acknowledge we go through those seasons and we can start thinking that way, but it, the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. God's Spirit lives in us. Can He not take the power in this Word of God and teach even me something if I go to Him in humility and brokenness? He will. But He won't do much of it if the book sits like this on a shelf somewhere, closed and covered with dust. But if you force yourself to humbly open this thing and read it. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. In James chapter 1, he says, pray for wisdom. If you lack wisdom, just pray for it. He will give you wisdom. We need to be in the Word. Let's see. I think I wanted to read one more scripture. 2 Timothy 3.15. says, and... Paul writing to Timothy, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the Bible. This is the book that we have. So receiving the Word is the first aspect, but if all we do is receive the Word and we think that's good enough, we are kidding ourselves. If you think because you go to church on Sunday that's good enough, you heard the Word, you heard the message, and that's it, you're kidding yourself. Now, those aren't my words. I'm, I'm being kind. James says it this way. You are deceiving yourself. And he says it with the strongest way possible. Those are the religious people who, because they attend church or because they hear a message and they think they received a word, there, I'm good. James would, would disagree with you. He would say that's not good enough. So renewing or receiving the word is a start, but we need to respond to the word. Verses 22 to 25, but to prove yourselves doers of the word, hear it, do it. Doers of the word. Now, I'm telling you all this, and I hope you're hearing it from a non-legalistic point of view. I'm not legalistic here, but this is God's heart that we don't sin, Amen. And as a Christian, that should be my desire. I don't want to sin. But I know that I'm going to. And so are you. But we need to be doers of the word. And James is stressing this very strongly. And he says, do what the word says. Apply the word. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks in the natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Ever done something like that? I mean, you read that and you go, what the world is he talking about a mirror for? You ever went to the mirror? I've done this. You ever went to the mirror in the morning, you looked in the mirror and you go, oh my gosh, that poor guy. You got a big zit that you need to deal with, cold sore over here, and it looks like you slept on the top of your head because your hair is going everywhere. I have a wife like that. <laughs> the hair part, only the hair part. And you say, I got to fix this mess before I go out in public, right? So you go out, and you get dressed, and the next thing you know, your mind starts wandering and thinking about all the things I got to do today, and downstairs you go, and out the door you go. First person you run into, you think you look great, right? Shoot, I always look great. That's how we all think. We look great. And they're looking at you, and they're too kind, but inside they are just laughing at you. They're going, geez, look at the zit that he's got right in the middle of his forehead. And that cold sore is going to take over his whole lip. And the hair. Forget it. I'm oblivious to how I look. This is what James is saying about someone who hears the word and does the word. The mirror is the word of God. You look into the word of God and and if you're reading the word of God, it's going to be like a mirror eventually in your life. You're going to start to see things and go, wow, I need to deal with that. I think I need to surrender that. I'm pretty sure I need to repent of that. You know what? I don't need to walk in shame and guilt and condemnation. I'm a new creature in Christ. I need to deal with that. And this list can go on and on. And I'm, I'm in the Word and it's like a mirror and I'm even getting excited and I have everything, everything in me is nothing but good intentions. And then I close the Word. And then I walk away. And I quickly forget even with the best of intentions, what the mirror was showing me I really look like. And this is what James is addressing when he says, if you're a hearer only and not a doer, you're looking into the word, the mirror, and the Holy Spirit is trying to reveal these things in you, trying to show you things that, that maybe you need to confess. He's trying to show you that the, the promises of God are really for you. That there is a power and authority in the name of Jesus that you can use to overcome the enemy. He's trying to show you all these things. And, and when you're in there, it, it, it'll start to excite your spirit. But if you walk away saying, and you're not a doer, you don't ever change. And that's what he's really, really, really driving home. Don't think hearing alone is enough. You need to be doers of the word. In verse 25, he says, look intently into the perfect law of liberty. The law of liberty almost seems like a complete contradiction, doesn't it? Law and liberty. The reality is the law of liberty is one that brings freedom. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he says he's going to write the law in our hearts. And when we start to get the word in us, we begin to realize that, you know what? We have the freedom to do the right thing. We have the freedom to overcome sin. We have the freedom to break loose of those strongholds in our life as we surrender to the Holy Spirit. We have a freedom in the law of liberty. A freedom to begin to be more and more Christ-like. A freedom to begin to walk further down the path to my divine destiny that he has ordained for me. It's all in there in the law of freedom. 
the royal law of freedom. He calls it in just a few more verses. And it's the freedom that we really need to, to quit serving our sinful passions and those lusts that are in our lives. Those areas where we continually fall short. And then he, he gets ready to switch to thinking a little bit, but he says, you know what? This kind of thinking, this kind of doing brings great blessing in your life. Doing the Word of God. Obedience to the Word of God brings blessing. God's good all the time. Everything He does for us is good. Even as we look into these things and He's putting His finger on those areas of our lives that sometimes we get a little bit stiff-necked. You know, it, it's, we're really sometimes no different than our kids when we're trying to teach them to do the right things. And we start to tell them how they should do something or what they shouldn't do. And man, oh man, you just can kind of see the rebellion rising up in them. Well, God's better at that than us because he's perfect love. Most of us do a lot of that. Sometimes we forget that part. But we're sometimes like that. We just start to, to rise up. And I know I want to do this. I mean, I think all of us know and understand this truth that sin is usually pleasant for a season. When Satan comes, he dresses it up. Last week we talked about the bait, how he wants to get our eyes on the bait and not on the hook, not on the trap. And the bait is usually pleasant for a very little while. The Word of God and being doers of the Word prevent us from taking the bait. It allows us to see the hook. And when we do these things, when we receive the word rightly, we begin to respond to the word rightly, it really changes the way we live. It brings a new approach to our lives. And, and it's a great way to live. And, and, and Paul, uh, James, one thing about, I like about James, you know, there's sometimes he's, I feel like he's just, you know, maybe slapping me too hard. But I love how practical he gets. Because he gives me things I can understand. And when he says this new approach to life, he's going to compare two things. Pure and undefiled religion. I go, what the heck does that look like? And then this, this other kind of religion. This, this religion that's worthless is how he describes it. Worthless, outward, ceremonial religion. It's worthless. And I'm thinking, boy, if that sounds harsh to us, can you imagine James telling this to a Jewish people? All that worthless, outward, ceremonial garbage doesn't do a bit of good. He wants pure and defiled. You know, with God, religion, we use that word a lot, and to everybody hears that word religion, we have a little different connotation, a little bit different definition in our mind. Um, God, in the New Testament, you know how many times the word religion is used? Four. And two of them are right here. God's not all that impressed with outward ceremonial religion. What he is concerned about is character and conduct of a Christian. And this is what James is going to teach about. He mentions the tongue, and I'm not even going to go there because we'll talk about that probably in the next week or two. He mentions the tongue and it needs to be bridled. And if you haven't bridled your tongue, you know, your religion, he says, is something like this, worthless. 
Study it for yourselves. <laughs> it's only words. No, it's not. We can't control our mouth, control our tongue, and it's hard. And he really elaborates that on cha- in chapter 3. But he mentions it here, and I'm just going to mention it like that in passing. And I want to go on to this pure and undefiled religion. Conduct and character are, are aligned with God's word. That's what pure and undefiled religion looks like. My behavior, my conduct, my character lines up with the word of God. And then he uses uh, simple examples in this. Uh, what's it look like? And he, he stresses again, religious ritual, uh-uh, I don't care about that. And he primarily is making a contrast when he talks about pure and undefiled versus this worthless religion. And he goes on, he says, this pure and undefiled religion will manifest in a right relationship with God and with others. We can maybe fool people with our right, religion, our right relationship with God, acting and pretending like we're right there where we need to be, but you don't have to watch people very long to see how their relationship is with other people, other Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he uses this example, favoritism, discrimination. Now he uses the difference between the rich and the poor, which is a great one, but what we could put anything we want in there. God does not think highly of favoritism, discrimination, Matter of fact, James calls it sin. He calls it sin. In 1 Samuel, let's see, I'm going to go to Ephesians first. Ephesians 6, verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves. So here, here in Ephesians, Paul is making the comparison between a master and a slave. He says, between masters and slaves, treat your slaves the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master is also your master in heaven. And he says, there is no favoritism with him. No favoritism with him. Romans 2, 9 through 11. He talks about there will be troubles and distresses for every, everybody who does evil. The Jews first, then the Gentiles. And then he goes back and he says, but glory and honor and peace for everybody who does good. Jews first and Gentiles. And then he finishes in verse 11, for God does not show favorites. No favoritism. And in Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, he says, don't look at the, their appearance. Don't look at their height. Saul might come to mind. He says, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at their heart. And James makes this huge example out of favoritism. What is so evil about favoritism? Well, what the Bible says here is, one of the things about favoritism, as soon as I start discriminating and start showing favorites, I'm starting to judge people. And in, and in James, he says, we start judging with an evil intent. How do we show favorites? Well, the rich and poor, that's what James talks about. You know, don't treat the rich man special when he comes walking in the door of the church. Don't bring him to the front. Don't get him a hot cup of coffee. Don't do all those things. And then the poor guy comes in and you tell him, just wait in the foyer. Rich and poor. Old versus young. 
Ah, boy, those people that come in here with all those tattoos and piercings, them that drive you nuts. I think we should put them in the back room. They can't possibly be saved. And these guys up here on the stage playing that loud music, bring back the organ. I don't think, the, I don't think they're saved. We're going to pray for them later. We can discriminate in so many ways. Show favoritism in so many ways. And James is saying, it's sin because you're judging with evil intent. And we do that all the time, don't we? And God makes clear over and over throughout Scripture, I don't show favorites. I don't show favorites. Man, it can be a humiliating thing when God points this out to you. I'm going to confess something. A few weeks ago, I had knelt down during our praise and worship and I was praying and my prayer was simple. And I've shared this with some. My prayer was simple. God, whatever's in me that's holding this thing back, holding me back, God, put your finger on it. I, I want to get rid of whatever it is. You know, I didn't see lights or rainbows or anything like that. I stood up and it was communion. So it must be about a month ago. It was communion. Uh, and uh, <laughs> you'd think a month would be long enough for it to rub, 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 go away. But God opened my eyes to every single one of you as you came forward to communion. It was the most glorious moments I've had in a long time. Because it was like every family, I mean every family that came up here, it was like God was showing me what he's doing in their lives and what he's done in their lives. And how precious they are in his sight. Some of those little kids that sometimes you're up here and they're about ready to tip the whole thing over. And I'm sitting there like, Lord, if they do that, I'm going to kill them. All I could do was smile. Tears are running down my face. I think they thought I was having a breakdown. It was just, honest. And, you know, and I didn't even think about it until weeks later. The people I've shared this with that hadn't even came to my realization, God was answering my prayer. What was holding me back? What was making me feel like I needed to confess and repent? I was judging you guys. I was judging people. I was discriminating who was qualified, who wasn't, who was good enough for this and who wasn't good enough for that. Where are the ones that are capable? God, bring us in some people that can do Jeez, how ugly is that in your pastor? God was answering my prayer. It was awesome. He didn't do that today, by the way. <laughs> but it was great. And as I'm reading James, I'm thinking, man, it is so easy. It is so easy to start judging and discriminating against people because they're not exactly like me. They don't dress the right way. They don't do their hair the right way. They don't wear makeup. They're too tall. They're too short. They're too heavy. They're too skinny. They're too this. They're too that. The list just goes on and on and on. Boy, James doesn't cut us much slack. Matter of fact, he, he addresses this idea that, that somehow or other we can trivialize some, of, trivialize some of those sins. And when he talks about evil intent, he brings up a couple of examples to show us that nothing's trivial when it's sin. He jumps all the way to adultery and murder. And it's like, wait a minute, I just thought we were talking about favoritism here. I feel better when you're just talking about favoritism. The point he was making is it doesn't matter what the sin is. It's sin. It's sin. 
in God's eyes. Don't deceive yourselves. He's making that point as he goes, don't deceive yourselves. You need to be doers of the word. Don't deceive yourselves. Favoritism is as bad as any other sin. And he's just using favoritism even for an example for us. Whatever that little sin is that we think is a little sin that we're trivializing in our life, James is saying, that's a big deal to God. Confess it, get right. Be done with it. He makes just a short excursion into mercy versus judgment. And he makes this point. First of all, we're all going to be judged. All of us that are Christians are going to be judged. The great news is our salvation's not on the line. That's not what he's judging. But he's judging our works and the rewards. And this should really motivate us. He says, mercy and judgment. The more merciful you are in this life, the more mercy God is going to show you. That should excite us to be merciful. To be merciful. When you look at what James is saying, even in his bluntness and even in his almost his in-your-face attitude at times, he's teaching two really important basic truths. Love triumphs over prejudice always. Love triumphs over prejudice. When we start walking in the love of Jesus Christ, we quit judging. Quit judging people. We just quit discriminating. And the second one is mercy triumphs over judgment. And guess which of those four are the easy two to do? Judging and prejudice are so easy to do. I mean, I can do that this quick. I don't even seem like I have to think about that. It just comes out of that natural old flesh. But love and mercy require me to be submitting to the words of God. Letting the life that is in me be made real in the people that I'm with. Love and mercy over prejudice and judgment. So when we look at what James is saying, receiving and responding to the word of God really brings about a new approach to living our lives. And it should be evident to the world around us. It should be one of those things that draws people to Christ. They look at you and they look at me and they see, wow, they walk in love. God, they don't judge anybody. Isn't it nice to be around people that don't judge anybody? How many of you know somebody who's just super critical? All they do is criticize and judge all the time. If you live in my house, they'd say, that's dad. (laughs) Just thought I'd beat you to the punch. And somebody comes to mind in my life too, real quick. But isn't it nice when there's that person when they say their name, I go, God, you know, they are the nicest people. They don't judge anybody. They just accept everybody, just who they are, what they're for. And it, they just love people. That should be all of us. And that's what James is saying. That should be you and that should be me. And when we do this, it prepares us 
to live victorious lives in the face of the tests and the temptations that come our way. It, ha- it gives us the grace to react rightly when we are going through a trial and a test. Okay, God, show me. What is it you're trying to teach me? What is it you're wanting to do in my life? God, here I am. Here I am. Do what needs to be done. And it also gives us the grace to respond rightly to temptation. I will not go there. That is not of God. That is the enemy. I rebuke that. I renounce that. God, give me the strength. I confess it as sin. Whatever needs to be done when we're living in the character and our conduct is exemplifying Christ. To live in such a way really leads us to spiritual maturity and a life of holiness. You know, in some circles, that word holiness is like a curse word or something. But we serve a holy God. And we're supposed to be coming more and more like him. None of us are going to achieve perfect holiness on this earth. But that's still a great goal. As long as we do not live under the bondage of legalism. We live under the perfect law of liberty. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much that you've given us your Holy Spirit and your word so that we can know you better, that we can begin to to become more like Jesus, our Savior. God, that we can then in turn become Jesus to those around us, that we can walk in love and share the truth of where that love comes from. God, I pray for each one of us that you would continue to Reveal those things in our lives that need some work. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to guard our hearts and our minds that we would never forget that you're a God who loves us beyond our own imaginations. God, that you care for us and that you're good to us. Lord, that we would just walk in love because you love us so much. I pray that wherever our our lives take us this week, Lord, that we go being sensitive to those around us, that we would take advantage of every opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, that we may come across hearts that have been prepared to receive that truth and be part of leading someone to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray your protection over us. We pray your blessing upon our weak. And we ask all this that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.